you beyond the borderline this is a podcast dedicated to exploring in a realistic and hopeful way what it's like to live with borderline personality disorder and other mental health problems. My name is Aline and I am your host for this podcast. I want to issue a proviso at the beginning of the podcast which is that this is absolutely not a substitute for professional mental health and or medical intervention. So please seek out those sources of support if you need them. And I also want to mention that I will be discussing topics such as self-harm and suicidal ideation and addiction that may be triggering for a number of people. I aim not to discuss those topics in a detailed way as I don't really think that adds anything to the discussion and does not really fit in with the mission of this podcast. However, in a spirit of being authentic about my life with borderline personality disorder, those topics will be mentioned in this and subsequent episodes. And I will do my best to issue trigger warnings before I start discussions about those or other potentially triggering topics. Okay, everyone, a warm welcome to a very delayed new episode. I hope that you've all had a good Christmas and Boxing Day if you're in the UK. And if it wasn't good, I hope you got through it relatively unscathed. I do want to apologise for the lateness of this episode. There are several reasons why I haven't posted it before now. The first one is just, quite frankly, I've been a little bit overwhelmed with lockdown, with the Christmas period, and I just kept procrastinating on getting this up. And the second reason is because even though I think this is a wonderful episode because of my guest, for some reason the sound quality is not that great. And I kept putting off editing it because I didn't like the way it sounded and I didn't want to ask my guest to come back and re-record because she's an extremely busy person, as you will hear from the episode but I just finally decided that I needed to just bite the bullet and and put it up and hopefully you will get something from it despite the fairly poor sound quality. It is still audible as far as I'm aware and uh, I just want to let you know that this episode is a two-parter so I guess this is part one and uh, the next one which I'll put up shortly will be part two and it's an interview with a really amazing psychiatrist who not only is doing important work in destigmatizing mental illness within her profession as a psychiatrist, she works with service users, she has a podcast that she does with other service or with service users I should say Um, but not only that she's also a filmmaker making films about mental health and mental illness and trying to create a responsible and realistic yet also entertaining and compelling uh, narrative or narratives about these issues so I really hope you enjoy the interview And without further ado, 
Welcome to the latest episode of Beyond the Borderline. Would you like to just introduce yourself and say a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm Dr. Parvinda Shergal. I'm a doctor in mental health in the NHS in England, um, London specifically. And I also, um, I do a mental health podcast. I'm a presenter. I've gone to Parliament for mental health. Um, and I'm also a filmmaker and actress. That's amazing. So which came first? Was it the, the filmmaking and the acting or was it uh, your medical, so it's medical a bit, work? It's a, it's a bit crossover. So I was going, I did acting for a long time and then I decided I'll go to medical school first and then acting school. And now they kind of come together. So it's a bit strange, but yeah. It sounds like you advocate for people with mental health issues, etc. Yeah. So what happened was that I, I came out of acting school last year and I went in the industry and I found a number of problems. So one of them was, one, women don't get lead roles. Uh, majority of the time it's given to men, actually. And secondly, women of colour don't really get anything, um, especially a British Asian woman. And then another thing I found, there was also a lot of mental health stigma that I found, you know, creatives, and it's bizarre to me, I don't know why, they don't know how to kind of deal with mental health. And a lot of creatives I was coming across, I found very interesting, have mental health issues, but they don't know how to kind of deal with it. And when I say deal with it, I mean, I found a lot of time in acting school, people would break down actors to get to an emotion, but they wouldn't safely lift them back up. And I was right. really concerned about that, you know, as a psychiatrist, and I really didn't condemn that. And then I also found that, um, you know, there's a lot of rejection in the industry. It's very um, critical. People are very brutal, you know, very verbally um, unkind, um, shall I say, some of the time. And I've noticed a lot of filmmakers and actors, and it's really hard to stay resilient and kind of cope and strategize. And a lot of them didn't really know what to do, like simple things, you know, self-care things and simple things that I think we do actually know, but we don't, we don't think we know. So then I was looking at mental health films and theatre and I thought, I can't really think of a single film. And I'm sure there are. I just haven't seen them where I think they do justice to mental health. And what I mean by that is if we take, for example, Shutter Island or um, Flying Over the Cuckoo's Nest or something, brilliant films you know the joker brilliant brilliant like i love them but if you actually step away from the cinematic beauty of these films you that's not mental health you know it's the fantasy of what we want mental health to be where it's you're a mafia murder you're a criminal you know you're going to rule the world of gotham you're going to be on this island of this hospital and everyone's like working and colluding with you and um you know i thought it's actually not mental health and what we're doing as filmmakers you're actually educating people across the world, globally, universally, that mental health is dangerous. You're going to be a murderer. You're going to be psychotic. You're going to have these wild fantasies and not know what the truth is. And I just thought that's really interesting um, that no one tells real life stories when cinema is meant to represent real life. And I thought, why do we not just tell stories for what they are? You know, why do we not have a lead LGBT actress like why do we not have that like why do we not have a black or mixed race or south asian actress who also has mental health issues like why why are we not showing this so i was looking outside my window and i thought you look outside and you see all walks of life you know disability lgbt mental health non-mental health physical health whatever um but this isn't represented on film so i was like okay 
this is interesting because there's also like barely any female directors or writers out there. And I thought, okay, I can write. I, I know how to direct. It's similar to being a doctor. You know, you lead a team, you communicate, things like this. Um, and I want to act in things that I'm proud of. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to start writing my own stuff. So I started with a play last year and it was about mental health and it was a comedy and it brought, and it was two, it was all female cast. You know, I wanted it to be female driven really witty um you know the kind of things you'd see men in but women don't get the opportunity so it started with that and I also had one of the roles about LGBT to bring that in as well and then this year I was like let me make some films so um so I did one short film that's going to go into the festival run next year and it's an all-female cast BAME cast so it's putting women on the map you know women mm-hmm. of color um so I pro- helped produce it write it and I star in it and it's specifically highlighting with that film perinatal mental health which is pregnancy and mental health because that is so under-resourced and unknown there's so much more and then I did a feature film that we that's edited and we're just trying to get out there called The Link and that again has an all-bame cast it has two South Asian actors two black actors and that's an interracial uh, marriage which you never see on screen you never see no, a South Asian really. black person ever yeah. Um, yeah. and that's about mental health trauma and I actually wanted to play around with that as well because I always find that the victim is the woman, but this time I made the man the victim. Um, And then I'm making another uh, feature film and this one that we're going to do, well, if COVID allows us, is about father's mental health. Because we never see anything, you know, we might see a bit of men's mental health, but never dads. I love Shutter Island. I love One Flow of the Cookie Nest. I've actually just watched Ratched on um, Netflix. Oh, really, re- I really loved it. And I actually really love The Joker. I remember talking to a few friends and, and they were saying, oh, it's so scary. And I was like, to be honest, all the stuff about him not getting his medication and all that, that doesn't scare me at all because obviously it's more really? extreme <laughs> than, the, than the UK. I'm lucky here, but I, I I can very much relate to all of that. The problem is that it sort of almost romanticizes it. It doesn't really look at the mm. suffering in it. It's it tries sort of, to it's make it sort a of great film. sexy, doesn't it? And it's not. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Like slightly glamorous, kind of crazy in quotes. I think that's really interesting about men because although I don't know the exact statistics, my understanding is that suicidality is highest amongst men. Mm. Um, So, I mean, it's true that I think there's this long tradition. I'm thinking of like Roman Polanski, repulsion and females going insane and you know there's a long tradition of that and yeah why not make something and especially a father that sounds really fascinating so that story is really interesting to me so it's called daddy blues and it's um it's a really fascinating story because it was based on this man uh, it's based on a book called daddy blues and this guy called mark williams so what happened was his wife had a baby and she went through postnatal depression but then he also had the exact same symptoms so it was the question of do men suffer from postnatal depression and if they do why can't they just because they haven't been pregnant so it was a really interesting um you know some very interesting points he made and it's a discussion we're having you know in the mental health world and I thought that is absolutely fascinating because we forget dads are also going through this you know dads are also getting insomnia when a child comes and they're also suffering with it and I, you know, I'm very much, I'm very pro, you know, women and women's mental health. I thought this was very interesting because it follows a story of, you know, not just the uh, the mother, 
going through this but also the dad I mean you, you don't really see that and you don't hear about it no you don't even I would, it would never have occurred to me that a man would struggle with postnatal depression I guess it would never occur to yeah. me and I so think people forget to ask don't they <laughs> yeah definitely I, de I think there's already so much um misunderstanding I mean I suppose it is better than it was 20 years ago mm. but I think I think there's misunderstanding and I think I mean just from my personal experience sometimes people they're sort of walking on eggshells a bit and they don't really know what to ask it sounds really brilliant and just on a practical note like how do you how have you sourced funding hey funding's like the biggest um the biggest enemy I tell you as a filmmaker so um with the theatre production we self-funded it and we we luckily sort of hit even when we sold the ticket so that worked out fine um, with my first short film, which wasn't about mental health, it was about COVID, um, I self-funded it, but I was really, I was very lucky in that situation because it didn't cost me anything because it was just, I just reached out to some people who I just filmed with, who were actually students. And I said, do you want to just make something for fun? Um, so that was fine. And that actually went to the BBC, which we're really lucky about. And then um, Phantoms, which is a pregnancy uh, or female film, we crowdfunded it um, for not much actually for what for what the footage looks like um, and then uh, my feature film we self-funded it but we're really lucky we had a woman that really believed in my vision and she gave us a few hundred pounds and it really it just kind of brilliant us. we don't make any money from it but we were able to like rent the equipment and like get transport sorted so that really helped um, but yeah, it's, it's a big issue is funding. But I really feel this is the time, you know, especially in the industry, especially in the time of COVID, you know, mental health is affected for everybody. Absolutely. And I feel like we have to source the funding for all films. And, and if you actually think about films, I always find this really interesting. Every film will always have something about mental health, but they don't realise, you know, there will always be a character that goes through a stage of anxiety, for example. Yeah low mood there will always be something like that if you look carefully but I think filmmakers who don't know about mental health they don't realize they're already doing that in their films yeah um yeah. so I really do hope you know future filmmakers do get the funding to make you know good uh, mental health films and actually educate properly and you can still make beautiful stories I mean the one that I can think of and I don't think it's really realistic at all so sort of romance and stuff is um silver lining is it silver linings oh, playbook Lawrence. yeah yes oh gosh yes I did see that ages ago um I mean I think when I saw it, I thought some of her I I mean, it's not explicitly stated that the guy has bipolar. It's not explicitly stated what she has. But I mean, to me, it's like mm. from my personal ex yeah. lived experience, it's very classic BPD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not stated. And, and yeah. I thought that it was quite her depiction was quite good. But mm. it just then becomes about how because they get into a relationship, everything's solved. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the last <laughs> thing that's going to happen. Happily, live happily ever after. Yeah. I know, I know. So, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure there are films, but I think that's really great that um, that's really great that you're doing this. And do you have I mean, as in your medical practice, do you I mean, I suppose you must see people with all kinds of different problems or do you, mm. does it, do you tend to get a majority of people dealing with one particular type of issue or? No, I, I think it really depends kind of, so that's an interesting question. So I deal with everything. So from ADHD, tics, Tourette's, autism, psychosis, anxiety, depression, you know, bipolar, um, 
you know, personality disorder, et cetera. But it, it really does depend also, I think, where you're working. And what I mean by that is if I'm working in A&E, I tend to see a lot of self-harming suicides. And if I'm working on, again, it depends where you are. If it's the old age ward, obviously I see more dementia. I see yeah. more low mood. If I'm on, it really, again, depends, to be honest with you. Um, but what I have been seeing a lot recently, and I think it's understandable, there's been a lot of um, increase in anxiety and low mood to do with the pandemic. And especially yeah. increase in young people, because obviously they're going through a school education parents are also having to homeschool I think it's very stressful obviously at home um, yeah. but I do see anything and everything yeah that makes sense and I of course I hadn't considered that that you might be in different spaces and since this is a BPD sort of focused podcast I mean mm. like currently what would be so let me just backtrack a minute so when I when I was first diagnosed I was quite lucky I think actually because I got, I got referred to um it was actually a treatment program run by guys. Oh, guys um, in St. Thomas's, is it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's the intensive psycholo psychological therapy service. Mm. Um, and I was very lucky because um, a, a lot of people I know are on long waiting lists. Yeah. But, um, you know, it is a struggle. You know, it is a struggle. And, um, and I suppose, you know, a lot of it is maybe to do with cutbacks and stuff. Sort of in the past when I was sort of struggling more with those symptoms around self-harm and stuff I would go to A&E and they would you know and it was quite serious but they would say well you know you're not at the point where you're really we think you're really in danger and stuff and mm. it can be quite it can be a bit of a in my experience it can be a bit of a, a catch-22 situation yeah. and I was just wondering currently and obviously it I'm sure it, it depends from individual to individual but what mm. what would be you if someone came into A&E just showing those sort of symptoms would mm. would they be referred to their like community mental health team or so I, again, firstly, um, thanks for sharing that. I think it's always really brave when someone does actually share their experience. I think it's tremendously courageous. So thank you. Um, I think it varies. Um, so if anyone comes to AME, the doors, we take everyone 100% serious. Everyone gets the same standard of treatment, you know, whether it's they want to, for example, you know, um, flash warning, if they want to commit suicide that day, or if they're struggling at home because of mum and dad have had a fight or something or whatever it yeah. is. Um, so we take everything point black very seriously and we do the same um, investigation for everybody, meaning we'll do a thorough um, you know, history, we'll look into the GP notes if we have to, um, you know, call around at home if we have to, medication, et cetera, et cetera. Um, some of the signs and symptoms, again, it, it varies. Everyone's very different. And, it, yeah. and that's always yeah. something to consider because um, especially with mental health, you have to always consider what's going on outside of what you're asking. Yeah. What, is their, what is their life at home? You know, are they struggling financially? Do they have a home? Eating, you know, physical health is something I yeah. think. And the first thing I worry about as a doctor is physical health because that can manifest into mental health. So as long as that's all excluded, I mean textbook criteria you know some of the things people might say and maybe you might relate to this and maybe you might not is um you know there can be sometimes you feel really angry you can be explosive and you might not notice that yourself other people might comment on that saying, yeah you're so angry you're losing your temper but you might not notice that yourself because you know sometimes it's hard to look at yourself objectively isn't it absolutely um, yeah absolutely 
Absolutely. And some other things might be that, and it's usually people commenting on this, is that you might be really impulsive. You might have unstable relationships or friendships with people. You might get very irritable very easily. Yeah. Um, you might sort of feel quite empty inside or bored. Um, you get you can be quite frustrated. Um, you might be self-harming. Yeah. And the thing about borderline personality disorder, why we call it borderline, is you might sometimes it's not for everyone, but you might sometimes feel, and I like to think of it as like on the brink of psychosis. So you might be feeling paranoid. You might have yeah. thoughts of things that aren't there that other people can't see. Um, so it really varies for everybody and some people might be you know the extreme just like anybody could be where you know they're having suicidal ideation for example yeah so it really does depend i think if someone's coming to a&e normally you know people don't go to a&e for fun like people no and and i think that's a really important point because um i hopefully it's a minority of people but there's that stereotype of you know it's attention seeking and so on mm. and and I think that's a really important point I don't think anyone really wants to be getting attention by going to A&E and nobody wants to trek to A&E yes. in the cold and wait yes. hours for <laughs> yes. a psychiatrist I'm telling you now and sometimes you have to wait hours for for us yes so nobody does it and I think if 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 it's someone and we have had this you do get that odd occasion where someone repeatedly is coming and if that is happening, it's actually not thinking, oh, and, you know, some people in frustration who don't understand mental health, it might be other staff, I don't know, they might think, oh, is it um, attention seeking? But actually, when I see that, I think, okay, what is happening here for this person to come? Clearly, there's something going on and they need help in something and we, we don't know what it is. Yeah. Because otherwise they wouldn't keep coming. So we haven't hit it yet. It, when I see that, I think there's a trend going on, but then why is that happening? Clearly, yeah. they're te trying to tell us something and we don't know what it is. So Definitely. Then, so yeah, I think, you know, you have to look at why is someone coming, if that's the case. And then what, your question about, you know, where do they go? Again, it varies. So normally what happens is we, you always do some sort of report that will go to the GP. Um, again, it does vary, but normally it will be discussed with the psychiatrist, for example, me um, on that day. And then we will decide, okay, where does this person need to go? And it's not that we're trying to not see someone. We're trying to think for them, what is the yeah. best place? So yeah. is it GP? Is it community mental health services? And then the third one, I, I like to break it down. Is it, um, is it admission? So yeah. admission to hospital is very serious. You know, we never want to admit somebody. No. It's not a nice experience for any, yeah. you know, for whatever, even if it's like for your heart, it's not a nice, no one wants to be in hospital. Yeah. So yeah. we never want to put someone in hospital unless it's absolutely an emergency. Yeah. Um, and I'm very, if I'm very concerned, we cannot keep you safe for you to go home or there's not someone at home that could like keep an eye on you because we always want people to be in their comfortable environments. That's their yeah. safe space. Definitely. If, if that's not the case, then it needs to be A and E, and obviously hospital. But if it's that that's not the case, we try to keep everybody back at home. And yeah. whether that's with the GP following up, it just might not be your GP, you know, books a routine appointment the way the psychiatrist would. But then it would yeah. be either GP in the community or mental health services. And yeah. mental health services, again, it's a different pathway for everyone depending on what it is. So I don't yeah. know what your experience was like if you went to A&E. So, yeah. So my experience was that I, I was 39 when I got diagnosed. So I'd gotten to a point where um, substance misuse was part of the picture. So that was... Um, 
I think that quickened, you know, it's sort of, it, as I'm sure you're well aware, you know, it's sort of, your moods get worse. And so I started, I mean, I'd been seeking help for years, but um, yeah, it just got to a point where I had a breakdown basically. So I was going to A&E and, um, and I was also going to, um, there was a local sort of drug and alcohol service. Mm. Um, and actually what ended up happening is there was a counsellor at um, the drug and alcohol service. And she said, I think there's something you, you do have problems in this area, but it, I don't think it's just that, you know, some people come in and that's kind of the major issue. And, and I guess they, they, you know, that service would take them on. But so she'd referred me to um, the community mental health team. And I had a very, I would say a very lengthy assessment. And what they said to me is until you stop misusing substances, it's going to be very difficult for us to give yeah. you a diagnosis. So I, I sought help in that area myself. Yeah. And then I eventually got diagnosed, which was actually quite a relief. And, um, and, and I can I ask you, because you said yeah. relief, did you feel inside you kind of knew? Yes, yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm. And I'd actually gone to um, years ago because I'd been diagnosed with anxiety and depression and, mm. um, you know, I had an eating disorder and, you know, I, it's the cl mm. classic textbook sort of mm. symptoms of BPD, really. Mm. And um, I'd actually gone to a doctor and a, a GP uh, years ago and said, you know, I think I might have a personality disorder. And I guess he wasn't that educated. Mm. so he said to me oh no oh, no personality disorder oh no <laughs> he was mm. like he was like oh people who have personality disorders are in prison and you know so he oh, didn't dear. <laughs> so he you know so that sort of fell by the wayside but yeah what ended up happening is that I I saw so I, I, it was a relief because I exactly I sort of knew and I, I was sort of like there's got to be something you? yeah you do and it's kind of yeah. like there's a point where it's like I'm trying and trying and trying and mm. I keep seeming to have these problems and they're getting worse yeah. I, I was seeking help for, for the substance misuse side of things myself yeah. but I had to wait probably about six or seven months yeah so that was a bit of a like clinging on by my fingernails and I, I did end up going to A&E um, yeah. a couple of times but when I got sort of significant thing was getting referred to that that program and it was it was really hard you know because it was like being in a room full of other people who all have similar issues and I was never someone I mean I absolutely identify with that sort of explosive anger and stuff but it was sort of I'm one of these people who more turns it in on myself right I have done I have had those moments you know and you know happily I haven't had one for a while um but um but I was around people who were like and it was really, really boundaried. Like if you came late, you know, there'd be like a morning yeah. meeting. And if you came late, you had to leave and you had to explain why. And if you sort of cross certain boundaries. But I mean, there are a couple of things with people. It's not I'm laughing because they were my peers, but obviously yeah. it's not funny, you know, yeah. but there were, you know, you had sometimes like you, at least for me, I was like, I have to laugh because it's sort of dark humor. But yeah. I mean, like I remember on my first day, we were having um a community meeting and I didn't know any of the people and there was a girl who um and it, again I, I get I totally get it it perhaps manifested a bit, a bit differently for her than for me but someone said something and obviously something it really triggered her yeah. and she had yeah. some books in her <laughs> she just threw them on the ground oh, yeah. and I know I'm laughing I'm not laughing no but it's either you laugh or you don't or cry yeah 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 and I I did stuff there too I like screamed at the therapist and so on but it was a, it was I think for me, what was really helpful is that even though I found it very difficult being in a group, yeah. actually, I think the group was, 
I mean, I do see someone one-to-one now, but I'd seen people one-to-one before having the diagnosis. And I think, to be honest, being in a group, it it really sort of, I think one-to-one, it's very difficult to sort of really sort of even be able to know what was going on inside myself. Um, Whereas in the group, you know, you'd have different people, including the whole team. Felt it didn't, I didn't always feel super contained, but at the end of the day, it was, it was fairly contained. So sometimes I think groups, you know, I think it can be nice sometimes to know you're not alone. You know what I mean? You're the only person dealing with this. Sometimes in mental health, you feel so isolated, like, Definitely. That's going on. And I think I know I, I've been in a group um, for borderline personality disorder. And um, I, I, I completely understand when you say when someone throws a book and you do you don't know how people will react, obviously. And it can be very uncomfortable in a group. Yeah. And you're yeah. not getting that one on one time. Um, but sometimes I do think it is nice in any situation to just think, OK, well, they're going through it as well. Like, I'm not the only one that reacts like that. So definitely, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I think the thing that, as you say, I think the thing that I appreciated is you would start to care about people and what they were going through. And then that, because obviously a lot of people at different, I think most of us at one time or another in varying degrees were suicidal and had suicidal ideation. But it kind of helped like, you know, like I, I... I'm sure a couple of, there, there were people who had their own things going on because of that. I kind of, you know, you get to know people a bit and you yeah. want to sort of, so that would draw, you know, draw you back and you'd want to, you, yeah. yeah. I mean, I definitely think that that was part of it for me. And I think also it's interesting about the one-to-one because I know one of the things I used to, I mean, it wasn't meant, and that's the thing, that's the thing. I can see why from the outside, it might look as if it's sort of, you know, manipulative or whatever but I what I remember is I kept wanting to speak one-on-one to people yeah. and I would keep sort of saying there are a couple of therapists and I said look can I just speak and they'd go no <laughs> no you have to do it in the group going, why yeah. why not why can't I speak to you so yeah so um but um but it, it it was um yeah it was it was really helpful to hear people and I think all that stuff like the emptiness and it's quite hard to explain to people I mean yeah, it, it's, it's a difficult one you know I think unless um, you go through it it's difficult isn't it like And that is the end of part one of this two-part episode. That was a little bit of an abrupt ending, I know, but I hope you enjoyed it. And please stay tuned for part two, which will be coming up in the next few days. Okie dokie, peace out. Don't forget, if you want to share any feedback, suggestions, comments, you can do so by tweeting me at beyond the B-O-R-D-E three. So that's beyond the border, all one word, except the last letter R would be replaced by a three. So that's again at beyond the B-O-R-D-E three. You can also just search for beyond the borderline on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and if you have suggestions for future episodes that you want covered, please let me know via Twitter. Take care and I wish you a peaceful next 24 hours and at the very least a few peaceful moments in the coming day.